Our text this morning is found in Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Would you please stand with me as we read God's Word together? Then he said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Good morning. When you hear the phrase, sell out, what do you think of? In our culture, what is a sellout? In my regular job, I work with kids that some might call troubled or perhaps at risk. One of the kids in my class claims that his aim in life is to be a professional rapper. And those of us who are older, that's a style of music that is uh, popular amongst the young people, especially those in urban areas. Um, and in his language, he constantly talks about keeping it real. And if you don't keep it real, in other words, you know, you don't want to be too popular, you don't want to be too good, you don't want to be too mainstream, you want to be real. And if you're not real, you're probably a sellout. One of the biggest sports stories in the last several months that those of us who follow sports have heard is the story of Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant was a superstar uh, with the Oklahoma City Thunder. They came very close to making it to the NBA Finals. Well, Kevin Durant recently signed a free agent contract with the Golden State Warriors, who have been one of the most successful and popular teams in the last few years. And lots of folks are saying, well, Kevin Durant's a sellout because he's not staying with the team that he grew up with and that he helped develop, that he's jumping ship to this team that's already very popular and very powerful. Well, what society says about being a sellout and what Jesus says about being a sellout might be different. And today I want us to take some time to look at perhaps Jesus' version of what that might be. We ask the question, what is the cost of following Jesus? And when I hear that question, familiar Bible stories always come to my mind. The first one probably being the one of the rich young ruler. This story is found in Luke chapter 18, verses 18 through 23. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he became very sad, because he was very wealthy. Recently I was... uh, sitting in a Bible study talking about this story, and one of the things that was mentioned was is that we don't really know the very end of this story. We know that he became sad. Some versions say he went away sad because he was very wealthy, but we don't know whether this message at some point touched his life, and perhaps he did give his life over to Christ. 
But that was one note of the story that I hadn't personally thought of before. Another story that comes to my mind is the calling of the first disciples. Peter, James, and John were fishermen. And as they first met Jesus, they had this miraculous catch of fish that um, we read about in Luke chapter 5. But in light of this circumstance, chapter 5, verses 8 through 11, and you can also find this story in Matthew chapter 4 and Mark chapter 1, we read these words. When Simon Peter realized what had happened, he fell to his knees before Jesus and said, O Lord, please leave me. I'm such a sinful man. For he was awestruck by the number of fish they had caught, as were the others with him. His partner, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were also amazed. Jesus replied to Simon, Don't be afraid. Follow. From now on, you'll be fishing for people. As soon as they landed, they left everything and followed Jesus. The cost to these men was not only a spiritual one, they committed their life to Christ in following him wherever he went, but it was also personal and financial. They left their families and gave up their very livelihoods to follow Christ. Later on in that chapter, Luke Luke chapter 5, verse 27 and 28, we read of the story of Levi, who is better known to us as Matthew. The words uh, say that later, as Jesus left the town, he saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be, be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. The context of of the verses in our text this morning in Luke chapter 9 is uh, the story of the great confession of Jesus uh, from Peter. And I want to read a few of those verses before we dig back into our text. One day Jesus left the crowds to pray alone. Only his disciples were with him. He asked them, who do people say I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. And others say you are one of the ancient prophets raised from the dead. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah sent from God. I love the way this verse is worded in the King James Version, Matthew chapter 16, the one that many of us may have memorized when we were young children if we grew up attending church. The King James Version, Matthew 16, 16. And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's read our text one more time, Luke chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Then he said to the crowd, If any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own way. Take up your cross daily and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. His words were spoken to the crowd, but they would have had special significance to his apostles in light of Peter's great confession. Jesus spoke of a self-denial, of which he was the greatest example. Paul instructs us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. 
Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privilege, he took the humble position of a slave, and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Although Jesus was foreshadowing his suffering and death in this passage in Luke chapter 9, the disciples would not have grasped his meaning until later the ordeal he suffered on the cross. But in the Luke 9 passage, the Jews would have clearly understood the symbolism of bearing a cross. The cross was a cruel instrument of torture reserved for the worst brand of criminal. In Luke's account, he mentions that the cross was to be borne daily, emphasizing the persistence of discipleship. Jesus' words in this passage implies that he was not just speaking about day-to-day troubles of life, but also about the willingness to endure hardship for his sake. Jesus used similar terminology later in his ministry. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 37 through 39, Jesus' words are these, If you love your father or mother more than you love me, you are not worthy of being mine. Or if you love your son or daughter more than me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you refuse to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of being mine. If you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for me, you will find it. With this teaching, Jesus instructs us to take the command to an extreme level by giving up our own lives for him for the sake of our salvation. Those who are not engrafted into the body of Christ cling to this life with every ounce of their energy, only to eventually lose the battle to death. But in contrast, the person who invests his or her life completely for God finds that such a life is not lost at all. What difference can one person make? What difference can I make? The Bible is filled with stories of those who were not expected to make an impact, but who turned out to be greatly influential. We could tell the story of Abraham, Moses, Gideon, David, to the likes of Zacchaeus, Peter, and yes, even our own Lord Jesus. I like to share the story of a young man who I met personally who made an impact. Craig Kielberger was a seventh grader from Toronto who was searching through the newspaper for the comic section one morning when he came across an article about Iqbal Mashi, a boy from Pakistan who had worked in a carpet factory since age four in horrible conditions. He escaped the factory to tell the world his story, but he was murdered at age 12. Craig, who was also 12 at the time, was shocked that another boy his age could live in a completely different world. He took the article with him to school and asked his seventh grade teacher if he could share the class about this story. Eleven of his classmates agreed to join him in the fight for child's rights. They named their organization Free the Children. 
They were children working for children. The 12 12 year olds wrote many letters to political leaders, fundraised through car washes and garage sales, and spoke to schools about child labor. Free the Children even sent a letter and a petition with 20,000 names on it to the government of India to get a child rights activist out of jail. At age 13, Craig traveled to Asia to meet child laborers and helped police in a raid to free the kids from a carpet factory and return them to their families. That trip changed his life. Today, nearly 20 years later, Craig runs Free the Children as a volunteer and continues to give many speeches and travel around the world to fight for the cause of children's rights. He has won 10 honorary degrees for his work. He is a best-selling author who has written nine books. When he first started as an activist, many people thought he was too young and should not speak of such things. But he persevered and raised millions of dollars for kids around the world and continues to inspire millions of young people as a true role model. Craig says, The change starts within each one of us and ends only when children are free to be children. One person can make a difference. We live in a world filled with hatred, violence, suffering, and injustice. But yes, we can make a difference. I can make a difference. Romans 12, chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. We spent some time uh, this summer studying First Peter in our Bible classes, and also some of the lessons spoken from the pulpit have come from First Peter. I'd like for us to look at a few verses from First Peter, if you would turn to chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. We are foreigners and exiles in this world. The New American Standard Version uses the words aliens and strangers. Verse 11, 1 Peter chapter 2, reminds me of the first stanza of the old hymn. This world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. And the second part of verse 11, Peter reminds us that our sinful desires war against our soul. Just a few moments, we're going to come back to that thought. But in verse 12, Peter instructs us to practice self-discipline, to live good lives among the pagans, or as many verses translate this word, among the Gentiles. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 12. Then people who are not believers will respect the way you live, and you will not need to depend on others. Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, the very words of Jesus. In the same way, let our good deeds shine out for all to see, so that everyone will praise your Father in heaven. 
We are instructed to conduct ourselves in such a way that we bring praise not only to ourselves, but ultimately to the glory of God. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. I'd like to mention a side note about 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. Some scholars maintain that on the day that he visits us, which is at the end of verse 12, refers to the day of judgment. Other scholars might take the position that this is a reference to a time when a pagan or a Gentile might give the gospel a favorable hearing and be converted to Christ. From my point of view, either interpretation would be excellent since the ultimate goal is God's glorification. Christ himself was our example and model of behavior. Let's skip down from from 1 Peter 2 to verses 23 and 24. We read these verses this morning in Bible class. He did not retaliate when he was insulted, nor threaten revenge when he suffered. He left his case in the hands of God, who always judges fairly. He personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. By his wounds, you are healed. You might be thinking to yourself, that all sounds fine and good. We've heard these words before. But how can I apply these principles? What can I do? In answer to those questions, I want to to pay attention to the words of Paul, which Reed read this morning from Romans chapter 12. These are the verses which our campers uh, studied in depth this week. Romans chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. And the, the little caption above these verses is, Love in action. What can I do? Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in love. Honor one another above yourselves. Never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share the, with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. These are a few things listed in these verses that we can practice. Love, honor, zeal, joy, faith, prayer, hospitality, blessing others, rejoicing, 
mourning with those who are sad, humility, doing right, peace, feeding and giving drink to the needy, overcoming evil with good. I'd say that's a pretty practical list. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. So prepare your minds for action and exercise self-control. Put all your hope in the gracious salvation that will come to you when Jesus Christ is revealed to the world. So you must live as God's obedient children. Don't slip back into your old ways of living to satisfy your own desires. You didn't know any better then. But now you must be holy in everything you do, just as God who chose you is holy. We must prepare our minds for action. I'd like to share a story that was told uh, as Ronald Reagan's favorite story, and this has been um, recorded by Chuck Colson, about Telemachus, a 4th century Christian monk. This man lived in a remote village, tending to his garden and spending much of his time in prayer. One day he thought he heard the voice of God telling him to go to Rome, so he obeyed, heading out on foot. Weary, many weeks later, he arrived in the city at the time of a great festival. The little monk followed the crowd, surging down toward the streets into the Colosseum. He saw the gladiator stand before the emperor and say, We who are about to die salute you. Then he realized these men were going to fight to the death for the entertainment of the crowd. Telemachus cried out, in the name of Christ, stop. As the games began, he pushed his way through the crowd, climbed over the wall, and dropped to the floor of the arena. When the crowd saw this tiny figure rushing to the gladiators and saying, in the name of Christ, stop, they thought it was part of the show and began laughing. When they realized it wasn't part of the show, the laughter soon turned to anger. As Telemachus was pleading with the gladiators to stop, one of them plunged his sword into his body. He fell to the sand. As he was dying, his last words were, In the name of Christ, stop. Then something strange happened. The gladiator stood looking at the tiny figure lying there in the sand. A hush fell over the crowd. And from the upper rows, a few folks started walking out and leaving. Others began to follow. And in a dead silence, everyone left the Colosseum. The year was 391 AD, and that was the last battle to the death between gladiators and the Roman Colosseum. Never again in the great stadium did men kill each other for the entertainment of the crowd all prompted by one tiny voice that could hardly be heard above the roar, one voice that spoke the truth in God's name. You know, it takes something to be the only voice. It takes guts to be the lone man or woman sticking out in a crowd. It takes heart to speak out when it's easier to keep still. It takes courage to stand up when you're standing alone. We are involved in a spiritual battle, a war against sin. Yes, we're going back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. It's time to choose sides. I'd like us to take a look at some, some verses from the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and there before me was the Lamb standing on Mount Zion, 
and with them 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters and like a loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before four creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they remain virgins. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Whose mark do I bear? In this battle, we have got to be all in. We've got to sell out to the Lamb. No compromises. We've got to choose a team. In the 1920s, the Prohibition Bureau of Chicago, which included about 300 agents, was notorious for its corruption. Many agents accepted bribes from gangsters in return for looking the other way and not interfering with bootlegging operations. Elliot Ness, however, stood apart from his fellow agents, earning a reputation for honesty and toughness in cracking down on the illegal manufacture and sale of alcohol. As a result, in 1928, the 24-year-old Ness was tapped by the Justice Department to lead a hand-picked team of agents dedicated to toppling the most notorious, notorious gangster and bootlegger in history, Al Capone. It was reported that Capone's illegal enterprises brought in as much as $120 million a year, and this was in the 1920s. Ness was determined to make a significant dent in the gangster's business, and his team wasted no time in locating and shutting down breweries and distilleries associated with Capone. In 1929, one of Capone's henchmen allegedly offered Ness a $2,000 a week bribe to cease his harassment against the gangsters. Ness, who earned only $2,800 a year, responded by calling a press conference. In front of the reporters and newsreel cameras, Ness publicly announced that neither he nor his men could be bought by Capone. The following day, in a report of the press conference, the Chicago Tribune gave Ness and his 11 agents their now famous nickname, the Untouchables, to describe their incorruptibility. Are you and I ready to live a life of character and commitment to the point that we can be called untouchable? Are you ready to be one who makes a difference? If you would, I'd like you to stand with me. And as, as you stand, I want to ask a few questions, and each one can respond in whatever way they, they see they need to. Are you ready to make a choice? That's what the Lamb is calling for in Revelation chapter 14. Sell out to me. If you need to share your needs with someone, there's going to be elders and folks around the outside of this building that want to pray with you, that want you to share with them. And if you need to make that commitment to Christ and you've never had the opportunity to do that, we want to give you that chance this morning. If you want to study with someone, visit with someone, please respond. Are you ready to follow the Lamb wherever He goes?
Let's sing.